Well, let, let's dig in. Um, we're, we're, we've kind of concluded our uh, kind of our Bible overview, then we, we really focused in on Galatians, uh, at least as much as you can. I mean, there's still things that you could say, but we still cover trying to cover the, the big points. So we're going to move into the small catechism. And what is the small catechism? The small catechism is Martin Luther's uh, like small teaching or basic teaching on what he felt every Christian ought to know. You know, and um, so it looks at basically three things: uh, the Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, and the and the Creed, the Apostles' Creed. So um, if you got one of these, um, yeah, yeah. And um, so th- this is sort of uh, this is Luther's small catechism printed up, and then my commentary sort of inserted in there. So this would be good to read through every now and then. Um, but I want to read first an introduction to kind of give some context of why this was written. And basically what happened um, was that Luther went out to visit these new Lutheran churches, right? Remember that, you know, when the Reformation came, this teaching on justification, the getting rid of indulgences, and then other issues, uh, conflicts with the papacy and so forth. Um, so you had churches that would leave the, the the Catholic Church. Really, like you'd have a prince that would leave the Roman Catholic Church, and then all the churches would leave. But um, but what you'd already had taking place was a lot of ignorance among the people. You know, the mass was in Latin; they didn't speak Latin. They weren't studying the Bible; they didn't know what was in the Bible. So that you already had that. So then the Reformation comes, and you know you have a bunch of ignorant people. You have priests that aren't doing a good job teaching. And they don't know anything about Christianity. And he realizes, well, gosh, now that we've, you know, taught rightly against the Pope and the Catholic Church on these issues, now we have the job of teaching the people. Now we have the job of teaching these people what it is to be Christian. And so he thought, oh, wow, well, that's a big job. What do we? What are the main things they absolutely, positively have to know? And it's the Lord's Prayer, the Creed, and the Ten Commandments. So he wrote this catechism. But let me read you Martin Luther's introduction or some of his introduction. He says this, The deplorable, wretched deprivation that I recently encountered while I was a visitor has constrained and compelled me to prepare this catechism or Christian instruction in such a brief, plain, and simple version. Dear God, what misery I beheld. The ordinary person, especially in the villages, knows absolutely nothing about the Christian faith. And unfortunately, many pastors are completely unskilled and incompetent teachers. Yet supposedly, they all bear the name Christian, are baptized, and receive the Holy Sacrament, even though they do not know the Lord's Prayer, the Creed, or the Ten Commandments. As a result, they live like simple cattle or irrational pigs, despite the fact that the gospel has returned and have mastered the fine art of misusing all of their freedom. O you bishops! How are you going to answer to Christ now that you have so shamefully neglected the people and have not exercised your office for even a single second? Shame on you forever. Boom. That's a mic drop moment, right? So so that was his introduction to the catechism. And what he's saying is, I went out and I saw a whole lot of ignorance. You know, you people were living like animals, you know. And you're calling yourselves Christian, you're receiving the Lord's Supper, and you don't even know the Lord's Prayer, the prayer that, you know, Jesus commanded his disciples to pray. 
Um, so if it's good enough for Luther, I thought it'd be good enough for us. Um, you know, as, as an adult prepares for baptism, um, you know, to, to go through the catechism. So um, it begins with the Ten Commandments. And uh, let's just look at what it says, okay? So the Ten Commandments. Uh, what Luther wrote first was, as the head of the family should teach them in a simple way to his household. So just a little point. Whose responsibility is it to teach this to other Christians? No. No, what does he say? What's the, f- the heads of the family? Head of the family. I mean, well, the father. That's me, you. He definitely would have been the father, although yeah. we all know the women really run the family. But um, Brian one day is going to be married and have children. He'll be the head of the family. So you need to keep one of these on your bookshelf somewhere. <laughs> And then this is what you this is what you teach your children. Okay. Um, let me let me just say a word, and I'm sorry for the noise upstairs. We've got vacation Bible school going on, and they're no, stomping around in the room above. Yeah, yeah. Um, so um, let me just say a quick word, though. So remember when we talked about the when we looked at the Old Testament very quickly, right? We we talked about the law of God, and God gives His law to the people through Moses, and there are many hundreds of laws, right? You yes. remember that, and some of them were very specific about how to what to eat, what to wear, and stuff like that. The Ten Commandments were also part of that Mosaic Covenant. So some people have asked, do the Ten Commandments still apply? Because we can eat shellfish now, and we can wear clothes of two fabrics, and all of that, right? We can eat pork now, okay? So that one is the, the Ten Commandments? Don't we eat pork? No. No, no, no. Oh, okay, okay. No, no, no. But the Ten Commandments are part of that, yes, you that know, law. that that law. Yeah. So some people said, well, why do we still follow the Ten Commandments? And generally, the answer is because the Ten Commandments reflect God's moral character, okay? So just because some laws from the Old Testament are no longer in effect, that doesn't mean they all are not in effect. The Ten Commandments reflect God's moral character. And as people made in God's image, we will always reflect God's moral character and we should always strive to be obedient to God's moral commands because God's moral character and his moral commands never change. Okay, we'll always be wrong to murder someone else. Okay, whether it's part of the Mosaic Covenant or any other covenant, it's always wrong because it reflects God's moral nature. Now, the only commandment, and I mentioned this before, but uh, and I'm skipping ahead a little, but the third commandment in the way that we number is uh, thou shalt sanctify the holy day, Okay, honor the Sabbath day. Now, that's a little different because in the Mosaic Covenant, remember, that would have been the seventh day of the week or what we would call Saturday. Christians later moved that to Sunday because that's the day of resurrection. Um, so I don't know if Sunday is really the Sabbath day or not. I don't know if that's the appropriate word to use. People would probably debate that. Um, but certainly, I think that, um, you know, it is, it is grace that God gives us to rest on a particular day, spend time with family, and, of course, to, to worship Him. So there are some Christians, or maybe they're not Christians, who argue still for this observance. Saturday or Sunday. Yeah. Right, Saturday. You know, they, Saturday, yeah, Seventh day uh, Sabbath, Adventists. Sabbath is a word, Latin word, right? Sabbath is, uh, I guess it's a Latin word. Yeah, I, don't, I don't really know. For yeah. Spanish, well, Sabato. Okay. Sabato. Sabato. It's Sabato. Okay. okay, yeah. Oh, so, I thought Salvador means Savior, right? No, Sabato. Oh, yeah. Sabato. Sabato is the Savior, yeah. And those who still believe Saturday is the Sabbath day are called Sabbatarians. Sabbatarians. Yeah. Um, but um, anyway, well, let, let's look at the commandments. Okay. Um, so the first commandment, 
Well, thou shalt have no other gods. And Martin Luther, he says, what does this mean? Well, very simple. We should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. Okay? Um, let me go and read my commentary, then we'll visit a little. You may not bow down to actual idols, but anything that you trust, love, or fear the most, or more than God, I might say, is in reality your God. It may be money, popularity, influence, or an addiction. Rest assured, we all have other gods, and this commandment is indeed the bulwark against all disobedience. So anything that you trust, love, or fear more than God is your God. Okay. Now this was written at a time of, of rank idolatry. Okay, People literally had pieces of wood or yeah. stone in their home that they would bow down to and pray to. And they might have been big pieces of wood or stone. Yeah. In fact, there's a number of examples... Uh, in the Old Testament, I was just listening the other day when in, in Samuel, there's a big idol that gets destroyed uh, by God. The head gets cut off and there's a place that the uh, idolaters, they never go to this place again because God destroyed their idol. Um, so the size of the idol is irrelevant, but if you bow down to, to something that's not, uh, you know, that's, well, that obviously can't be God, then it's idolatry. So that may not be an issue for us, but do we still have idols in the land? Of course we still have idols in the land because an idol is anything you trust, fear, or love more than God. And so uh, it, it very well could be money. It very well could be uh, the affection of other people. Uh, I mean, it could be that you have a, a such a strong desire to be loved by somebody else that, that you've made an idol of that person. You know, think of when you're a, a younger man, perhaps, and you, you're infatuated with a, with a young woman, okay? And she you, doesn't even look at you. Yeah, and she doesn't even look at you. That's, yeah. that's, a, that's bad, yeah. okay? Uh, that happens, yes. right? And it happens to women, too. Um, and anyway, so that's a form of idolatry, mm -hmm. okay? Um, and um, so anyway... Um, we don't have the little idols anymore. We don't have things made of stone, but we still have our idols. And this, this, this land is full of idols. Uh, you know, the last two commandments uh, are about coveting, not coveting your neighbor's things and not coveting your neighbor's uh, wife, right? But, you know, the society in which we live is, you know, is, is full of people who are constantly get, trying to get us to covet, uh, you know, there. You know, the marketing enterprise is one of coveting. Now, I'm not saying it's necessarily wrong because I'm a capitalist. I'm a capitalist for for some reasons, but I but I advocate against consumerism. You know, you got to have a balance. So I advocate for a free market. I advocate for a free society. But I don't advocate that every human being should do anything that he wants. That's not freedom. That's just another form of slavery. Okay. So, you know, in a certain sense. The, the, the commands against coveting are related to this because when we covet something, when we desire something, whether it's, a, whether it's a home or something inside of a home or an automobile or a person or someone's affection or, or to be liked by other people, all of the, anything that we're coveting, we're in essence making a god, right? Because we're, we're, it, it has so much power over us that it's consuming all of our desire and all of our affection. Um, so... In essence, you, you could argue that this command is the only command of God that's of any consequence at all. Because if you could actually obey this commandment, you wouldn't need any of the other commandments. Um, you wouldn't need to be told not to murder someone else because you would love God and trust God so much that you wouldn't need to murder someone to take what they have. 
or or you wouldn't have made your anger an idol and you wouldn't respond in anger. So if you show me a person who, who has no other gods at all, that is he fears, loves, and trusts God above all things, I'll show you a person who never commits adultery, who never murders, who never steals, who never covets, okay? Um, who always worships, who always, uh, who never takes the name of God in vain, right? I mean, I could go down the whole list and say, you show me that person who can, who can follow the first commandment perfectly, and I'll show you the person who easily follows the rest of the commandments. The problem, of course, What's is that... Question? Well, the, that's question. yeah, I, I haven't found that person yeah, yet, yeah. other than Jesus Christ. Yes, that's him. Yeah, he's that's the him. only perfect person. That's why he's doing all that. That's why God gave Well, I would say that, you know, of course, the nature of Christ is that he is God, yeah. right? So he is the second person of the Trinity. So um, he was uh, never in a situation where uh, he would be disobedient to you know his own nature he was truly tempted because he did he did possess also a human nature um so remember when we talk about the trinity we talk about three distinct persons but one essence or nature of god right so that's what we mean when we say trinity and when we talk about christ and the son of god we, we he has certain attributes he was eternally begotten of the father for example and um he was of a um, he, there are two natures of Christ. He's the only person with a human nature, but he did have a human nature. That's what makes his sacrifice on the cross work for us. But he also has a divine nature. And they're not one or the other. It's not 50-50. He's 100% both things. Okay? But while, he, while his ministry was taking place, we would say that he did, uh, he was not, uh, he did not have all of his divine nature, I would say, people dispute this, but I would say he did not have all of his divine characteristics available to him. And he says, for example, that he does not know the time or the hour when, the, when he will come again. Only the Father knows. So there do, do seem to be certain limitations during the earthly ministry of Jesus that he has. But, but that said... Yeah, yeah, there aren't there aren't many, and and you you know we would be wrong to overplay that. Some people also point to the Garden of Gethsemane where he's praying that God would could have the cup pass away from him, like that kind of indicates a certain human weakness or something like that. But anyway, so so the point is that we all have other gods. It's not a question of if; uh, it's, it's a question of how many, and it's a question of, of 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 can we strive for obedience and not putting anything above God. And remember the. Um, you know, the words Luther uses so well are fear, love, and trust. Fear, love, and trust. Fear, love, and trust. We fear God. We should fear God. Yes. We should have a healthy fear of God. That's the nature of God. Um, that's often misunderstood, but we should... Especially when you're doing something you think is wrong. You know? Absolutely. Absolutely. And you want to ask him for... If it's not... For, how do you say it? Uh, you want to ask him for... Uh, Permission? No, for forgiveness. No permission to forgiveness. Yeah, yeah. You know you're doing something wrong. Yeah. At the same time, you're talking with guy. Uh, you, do you hear me? Do you, yeah. do you believe me what I'm trying to say? Yeah. All that. That's yeah. fear, you know? Yeah. If the Lord's return wasn't just as much of a threat as a wonderful thing, you know, then yeah. yeah. That's right. That's right. That's right. I mean, he would just be our teddy bear that yeah. comes to make us feel better about ourselves, right? At the same time, you have to trust yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. We still can love God and we still can trust God even as we fear him because what what's so wonderful about God is that he, he is a God of justice, he is a God of wrath, he is a God of holiness because that's his nature, he's holy. 
but he's also a God of love and tenderness and mercy and compassion. And we see yeah. that in the Bible again and again and again as well. So we can come to Christ, we can come to God through Christ, you might say, um, precisely because we know the nature of God is holy but also merciful. And so we, we, we appeal to God's mercy with, with repentant hearts, trusting in him that he would do what he said he would do. You know, um, so, okay, second commandment, second commandment. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Luther says, what does this mean? We should fear and love God. That we may not curse, swear, use witchcraft, lie or deceive by his name, but call upon it in every trouble. Pray, praise, and give thanks. And here's what I say about that. I say there are many forms of taking the Lord's name in vain. It is not only cursing. It is also praying for silly and selfish things, and it is teaching things said to be from the Bible that cannot be demonstrated as such. Openly twisting God's word is the most common form of blasphemy today, and it happens in Christian media all the time. Okay, what am I trying to say there? Well, first of all, the easiest way and the most common way when we think of taking the Lord's name in vain, the most, we, we, we begin by thinking of cursing, right? Profanity, like, you know, getting angry and saying God's name, right? In, in a curseful or cursing way. So that's, that's, that's one way, and that definitely would be taking God's name in vain. The, the, the context of this commandment would probably be more along the lines, though, of asking God for special favors when you ought not to ask God for such favors. Um, so it would be invoking the name of God in prayer. I mean, for example, I don't think the Hebrews were in the habit of going around cursing in the wilderness using God's name. Uh, I guess it's possible, but I think that's more of a modern phenomenon. Um, it certainly... That kind of cursing certainly is a way that our rebellion against God plays itself out. It, it, it's a demonstration of our own, you know, um, hard hearts that we would use God's name in such a such a, a lazy way. But I will say that, you know, in the Old Testament, one of the problems we have with Old Testament translations is that the name that God gave himself or revealed about himself, Yahweh, is never used in Old Testament translations. That word is always translated to Lord, L-O-R-D, capital with all caps. We've talked about this in Sunday school before. But the name that God gives to Moses, and we talked about this in early in the Old Testament class, when Moses is going to go into Egypt, he's going to talk to the Pharaoh, he says, what's your name? And God says, my name is Yahweh. Yahweh, yeah. Yahweh, right? And that means I am, or I am what I am, or I am what I will be, and so forth. Um, in other words, God is saying he is the ground of all being. He is the source of all existence. Uh, and, he, and that's all encapsulated in his name, Yahweh. And I believe that a good translation of the Old Testament, it should read Yahweh instead of Lord. Because I think what happens is that we end up, we end up thinking of God as, a, as, a, as an office holder, but not as a, as a person, Right? And, and it's very, you know, we, you know, we think of the office of president or something, um, you know, but, but it, there's a person that holds that office. And, you, you know, there's a distinction between the two things. But Lord is a title. Yeah. And, and it's not a bad title. But when we speak of God, God is personal. Okay, God is personal. God is a, a personal being. He is a person in the true sense of the word. The reason that we are persons is because we are made in his image. Okay, he's not a person because he's made in our image, but we're persons because we're made in his image. We have personality. Okay, we have all the the hallmarks. We have free will. We have rationality. We have agency, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so, 
Um, so what, what, what am I saying? I'm saying that when, if, if it was common in our conversation that God's name was Yahweh, uh, it, especially when we're speaking of, and, and, and that refers, to, by the way, to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's important. Um, it's, we often associate Yahweh just with the Father because the Father is the only person fully revealed in the Old Testament. The revelation of the Son and Spirit come in between the Testaments, right? Old Testament, New Testament. Jesus comes here. Then later they write about Jesus and the Spirit on Pentecost. So the, the, the revelation of the Trinity takes place chronologically in time, and the name of God is Yahweh. That's in the Old Testament. So we associate the Father with Yahweh, but in fact, Jesus is Yahweh, and the Holy Spirit is Yahweh. Okay? So um, my point is that if we appreciated that being the name of God given by God, then when we talk about taking the Lord's name in vain, the way that we usually take the Lord's name in vain, we might say the name of Jesus inappropriately, but we often will say God, which is, in a certain sense, a kind of generic word to describe God. I mean, I'll capitalize God, and that's appropriate, but um, I, I, all I'm saying is that I think the way that we have gotten away from the name of God, Yahweh, we use titles in a certain sense like God or Lord, we easily, we too easily make a blasphemy. I don't think that was the exact issue with the Hebrews. Okay. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, 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 yeah. Some people get really, yeah. Really, the name of, of Jesus, you know, in the Greek is, you know, Yeshua. So it's really more like Joshua. So some people get real mad if you call Jesus Jesus because, well, that really isn't his name. And there is a connection between, you know, Jesus and the book of Joshua. Joshua is the book of the conquering of the land to make a place for, um, to make a place for the, for the Israelites. And Jesus conquers sin, death, and the devil to, you know, for his people. So if you say like something happens, you say, ah, Jesus, Jesus Christ. Some people get like, I remember my grandmother said, okay, she's not happy when something happens. You say, ah, oh, or something, say, oh, Jesus. Yeah, it depends say, on, don't, on. Don't say that name. You don't need to say that well, name. So I would say that generally speaking, if you're saying the name of God or Jesus in a moment of frustration or that's anger, not that's not good. All right. Yeah, I would say that's not good. That that's so that's something you would want to work out of your vocabulary. Uh, you know, so you say shucks or fiddlesticks or darn it or uh, yeah, people say geez. You know, why do they say geez? Because it was shortened for Jesus, probably. So, um, but. Um, but but I would say again, you know, so there's that. So there there's the there's the there's the anger and so forth. But Luther also refers to, refers to witchcraft, lying and deceiving by his name. And my point was that you can you can commit blasphemy by asking of God something that he never said he would do. I think it's blasphemous to say, God, um, would you please give me a thousand dollars today? Right? Win the lotto. Yeah, help me win the lottery today, okay? But but there are more subtle ways of doing it that happens in churches now all the time. So we actually need to call a lot of the teaching in the church today blasphemy. It is a violation of this commandment because they say that they're teaching the word of God. They say, they're invoking the name of God. They're invoking Jesus. And yet they make promises that God never made, that Jesus never made. That is blasphemy. That is taking the name of God's in vain. And that, and my point in saying that in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, 
The way that they would have taken the name of God in vain would not have just been through cursing, I don't think, because they would have been using the name of Yahweh. It would have been in asking Yahweh, the God of Revelation, for personal favor or for silly things or even for evil things. That is taking the name of God in vain, is saying, God, I really need a Lexus. Make it happen. You know, God, I really need, you know, a special favor. I, I really love that girl. Make her love me back or something like that. I mean, to even approach God in such a way is blasphemous because God, those aren't the promises God has made to us. He has, he has made lots of wonderful promises to us. People of the covenant, salvation through the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ, gift of eternal life, forgiveness of sins, uh, present wherever two or three are gathered. I mean, there's lots of promises that God has made to us, but it's not for us to have a suffering-free, good life. That isn't the promise God well, made. Well, you can ask him that for me. If you, if you are sick, for example, you got any disease, sure. you can ask him that for... Sure, I think, it's, a, I think it's appropriate to ask God for healing. For healing. Yeah, but we ask for it... Work. But we don't demand it of God. Ask God for work when I get out. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we pray every Sunday. Yeah, we have intercessory uh, prayers every Sunday. We pray for peace in the nations. We yeah. pray for the sick. We pray for the unemployed. We pray for the school system. We pray for missionaries. Um, you know, every Sunday we have intercessory yeah. prayers that are orderly. And, 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 and so it's totally appropriate. And Paul tells us to pray without ceasing. It's totally appropriate to come before God. That's not praying in vain. That is saying, God, we place ourselves at your mercy and we pray for your intercession in this way. When does it draw a line? You know, it might be pretty subtle. It might sometimes be hard to know yeah. when you draw a line. Um, you know, and when we get to the Lord's Prayer, you know, which is how Jesus told us to pray, it, it, it'll kind of answer, I think, some of these questions. Um, but I think that people, if they, if they, if, I think if they're honest with themselves, they know the difference between praying a prayer of special blessing to them apart from God's promises, and that would be praying in vain. Um, so, you know, you, 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 I would say listen to your conscience. Yeah, I would say listen to your conscience, and uh, and ultimately, yeah. I think it'll be clear whether you're yeah. praying in listen vain or not. Conscience. That's a good one. That's, that's yeah. Really, yeah, because... Yeah, you, you have to know what is wrong and what is I believe every human being knows what is he doing wrong and what is I believe people know if they're doing what is wrong and right. I believe that because they're made in God's image. See, that's yeah. the that's the that's the nature of man. So um so anyway, we think about that when we you know, let me say this too. One of the things that Luther does so well in this is that it's not just a negative, he also offers a positive. So he says, the commandment says, don't do this. But what does it mean we should do? And so I don't want to neglect that. He says, so he says, um, fear and love God that we do not curse, swear, use witchcraft, liar, deceive by his name. But here's the positive, but call upon it in every trouble, pray, praise, and give thanks. So how are we to use God? This is how. We call upon God's name in every trouble. You mentioned that earlier, looking for work, Right. Um, we call upon God's name for every trouble. We pray, we praise, and give thanks. That's a reflection of our faith and trust in God, is when we call upon him when we need something. But maybe there's a difference between what we need and what we want. Yes. Right? Yes. So we, we need a job. And they say, I believe, I don't know if it's in the Bible or not, but they say, God knows whatever, before you ask him, he knows what you need. Yeah. 
That's right. Oh, he absolutely. Oh, he, he, he already knows. Yeah. Yeah, he, he already know, He knows what we're going to pray before we pray it. So then yeah. the question is, well, why bother? Because it's a reflection of your faith. Yeah. It's a reflection of your trust that you would actually have such a conversation with God. You actually believe that God will do something about it. And so that's an appropriate way to use God's name. Um, okay, let's keep moving. A third commandment, and remember we talked about this a little bit already, but thou shalt sanctify the holy day, or you might say honor the Sabbath day. What does this mean? means we should fear and love God that we may not despise preaching and his word, but hold it sacred and gladly hear it and learn it. Let me go ahead and read what I say about it. Uh, it's not better than what Luther says, of course, uh, just a little bit uh, more. God gives you permission to rest. And, and, and if you think about it, that is pure grace. And part of your rest is sitting under God's word and receiving the sacraments on that day. To consistently choose to do other things when it is reasonably avoidable is not being neutral towards God, but despising his word. If you must work on Sunday, try to find another day that can be a day of rest and work towards getting Sundays off. Refraining from shopping on Sunday so others do not have to work would also be an admirable goal. So it, it, it's pretty well known that 30, 40, 50 years ago, not as many shops were open on Sunday uh, people didn't have as many access, so the demands to work were not as great as they are now. Uh, some people have to work now on Sunday. We deal with that at the Bonhoeffer House all the time, right, Brian? I said we deal with that at the Bonhoeffer House all the time, people working on Sunday. Yes. Uh, so what do I say? Okay, you need to work. You need a job. Work on Sunday. And then talk to your boss about getting Sundays off. Work toward that goal. If you get another day off, if you get Tuesday off or Thursday off or Friday, then make that your Sabbath day. Make it a day of rest. I have to say, I am notoriously bad about this commandment. I'm, a, I'm an absolute Sabbath violator because I love to work. I do not take days off. <laughs> I work with a guy, yeah. he says, <laughs> you call that kind of, he says, seven days, uh, about the seven day, I don't know why you call that kind of religion. Seventh day Adventist? Yes. Yeah, yes. so, they're, so they, they hold that this is still, the seventh day is still the day to worship so and rest. I believe he, he asked him to his boat. Oh no, I believe no, he asked him to his boy he can now right. can't work in Sabbath. Right. Because he's right. part of this. Right. Then let him do one, you know. He's is he a Christian or a Jewish? No, he's a Christian. Okay, he's so yeah, he'd be a Sabbath day. Actually Adventist. he's from Kazakhstan for the uh uh Acme uh Russian ethnic. Oh, okay, interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean some Christians have certainly held to this as as a as a as a law, but they're not Sabbatarians per se. I mean you know, I mean, many Christians, and and I think this is still right to do. You know, they 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 do rest on Sunday. They don't do anything. I think it becomes harder when you think like, do the, think of things like, well, now I'm going to go. I need to go to Walmart today to get all my shopping done for the week. Well, when we go to Walmart, we're telling Walmart, Walmart, you should be open on Sunday because I'm going to do my shopping on that day. And Walmart's going to say, well, if you're going to come do your shopping, then I have to hire these people to work on Sunday. Now we're in the situation where people have to work. So it might be not really work for us to go shopping, but it puts other people in a position to go shopping. You know, how much freedom Christians have on this particular command on Sunday, how much work they could do. I've given the example before. I remember, you know, I, I, if I mow my yard on Sunday, is that violating the Sabbath, the Sabbath commandment? I don't know, because in some ways, mowing my yard is recreational, right? In some ways, it puts my mind at ease because now I don't have to worry about my yard looking like crap anymore. So yeah. I think so, in some ways those are hard things to figure out, and I do think Christians have some liberty in this regard. Um, however, 
Um, I think that we should think about the imposition we put on other people to work on Sunday. And, and that's something that if all Christians did not uh, shop on Sunday, for example, I think that would be a good idea. I think, for example, we should do that with holidays too. I think it's absolutely, uh, even though it's not a, a sacred holiday to be sure, something like Thanksgiving, we should not be shopping on Thanksgiving. We should not put people in a place to have to work on Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving yeah. yeah. Um, and, and, and stores are open now on Thanksgiving, and that's going to become more common. Christmas Day uh, would be another easy example. Easter Day. We should not be shopping on those days. We should plan ahead. Uh, Jews did that every day of the week uh, for on the sixth day, right? On Friday, they would prepare for the Sabbath rest. We should be doing the same thing. Um so, you know, one of the hard things about that, though, is that people think of Christian worship as work. And, and, and one of, the, one of the, the things about Lutheran worship and the understanding that you receive God's word and sacrament is that it's, a, it's not work to worship, although it kind of does feel like that sometimes. Hopefully, as you mature, it feels less and less like that. But it is a time when you get refreshed. It is a time when you receive what God would give. And the more you desire to receive what God gives you, the more that worship feels like rest and less like work. And so then that's appropriate to do on a Sabbath day. So um, I would say, too, in terms of avoiding worship, this is something that we struggle with. All churches are really struggling with because the norm, the acceptable norm of worship for Christians now is about one or two Sundays a month, just to be honest. Um, when, when they take polls of Christians and they say, how often do you worship? And they say, I worship regularly. And then they ask what that means. It means once a month. So most people, when they think of worshiping, they think once a month is, is, is good. I would say this command would say otherwise. Really, we need to act as a testament to the world that Sunday is our day to worship. Um, and uh, most companies comply. You know, they don't make us work on Sunday uh, unless you're in the service industry or retail and restaurants and so forth usually. But um, but really, we need to remember that that it's amazing how much grace is in this law. It's a command of God to be sure, but think of the grace. God is saying, you will do nothing. You will rest. Uh, have you ever been injured where you needed to get back to work and your doctor said, no, you cannot work? Yeah. It's kind of grace in a weird way, right? Now, I know there's a problem if you really need to make money, but if you think about it, um, this, is God's, this is God's total grace. He's saying you need, and I, you know, he's saying you need the rest, take the rest. I'm giving you the grace to rest. And if you really think about it, men are designed for a Sabbath rest, uh, you know, you can work 14, 15, 16, 20 days in a row, but you're going to burn out. Oh, yes. and, and you're not going to do good work, right? Yes. You need rest. You are designed I, to have rest. I was in that situation so. before. Yeah. I feel that. Yeah. 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 And, and you know what's interesting, too? If you do the math, you know, the Bible prescribes a, a, a sabbatical. Where do you get the word sabbatical? From Sabbath. Sabbath, yeah. Right? You take time off every seventh year. Now, if you have a six-day work day, work week, we don't have a we don't have a we have a five-day work week, right? We get off Saturday and Sunday. Well, it used to be you get a, had a six-day work week. Sunday was a work day, and then you took off Saturday. So you do the math. That's fifty days a year, right? Because 50, 50 Sundays that they used to work, and then you do, and then every six years is is would be six times fifty would be, uh, or seven times fifty would be three hundred fifty. That's a year off. So what I'm, what I'm getting at is 
what they used to do would be that they would work six days a week. They would definitely take off the seventh day of the week. But then they would have a sabbatical where they would have a year of rest or where they would have a year where they would let the crop rest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you see that prescribed, for example, in the scriptures. Um, And in many academic trades and so forth, they give professors sabbaticals. You know, that time, a semester off, every seventh semester they get that off to do research or writing or something like that. Anyway, but I'm saying if you do the math, what we've done is we've done away with the sabbatical, which granted would, you know, (laughs) impact industry and trade and so forth. But we've done away with the sabbatical, but we've given ourselves an extra day off during the week to compensate. So it's kind of weird how that's worked out. Anyway, I don't take this particular commandment in the same way a Seventh-day Adventist would um, because this command is a little bit different in the way that it reflects God's moral nature. I don't think it reflects God's moral nature in the same way that the other commandments do. Uh, people would argue that, but I, but that is how I... I I take this particular commandment. Um, but it is in the Ten Commandments. It is it is a, 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 a me, not a means of grace, but it is a word of grace that God has for it, and we should seek to honor it better than we do. As a society, we should, we should be in worship on Sunday, and we should let the world know that they can do whatever the hell they want on Sunday, but we're going to be in church, you know? And, and that's going to cause conflicts. The most obvious conflicts are things like sporting leagues and... Other, you know, things people want you to do on Sunday. Hey, you want to come fishing with me on Sunday? Hey, you want to come golf with me on Sunday? No, I can't do that. I'm going to be in worship on Sunday. I, you know, I have to say, I'm. A, I have to say too. I, I'm. I'm. I'm for better or worse, pretty lenient on, on. You know, I'm. I'm understanding when you've got a family situation, and 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 a son is in sports, and and they do some things on Sunday. My general advice is tell the coach no. What if they? What if they say? Well, yes, but my son is a really excellent player, and he's has great prospects. He could be a professional, but he's got to participate in these traveling leagues and so forth. Um, I, you know, I, I kind of am going. You know, my encouragement is to tell the coach no, and 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 to be in worship. Do I think that it's the worst sin that one could ever commit? Well, no, I don't think that. I think there are ways that you could worship while you're on the road. Uh, you could find. Uh, if you're traveling a lot, you could find other churches to worship. You could find Saturday night worship or midweek worship. You could have personal devotionals. It's not ideal, but it's better than nothing. So this is a this is very important command. Command this one. Yeah, I, I think it's very important, but I think there's an element of Christian freedom now, um, you know, because this has been perfectly fulfilled in Christ as well. Yeah. So I think there's an element of Christian freedom in exactly how we go about it. Um, but generally, I would say that every Christian should find a 24-hour period in which they worship and rest. And, uh, you know, it's hard for me to talk about it because I don't model it very well. Most pastors get a day off during the week because they sort of work on Sunday. So, so Friday's my day off, and you'll often see me up here Friday. Um, and sometimes, sometimes I don't know when what I'm doing is my, my own volunteering or my own working, you know? Um, you know, it's hard to know sometimes, and it just it, it's just the way it works. Like, like I actually like to come up here for a couple hours some Fridays. Am I working? Well, it's church stuff. It's part of my call, but I don't. It doesn't feel like work. So, but we got to get through the rest of the commandments um, in in a few minutes here. So let's let's move quickly. Um, you might say as well, there are two tables of the law. There are laws that refer to God and the laws that refer to man. And by the way, 
Lutherans do not really count the, there's a part of the first commandment that talks about do not make any graven images. We don't include that as a separate commandment. Some other Christians do. So some Christians will talk about the first four commandments. Passive. What do you mean passive? Uh, well, we were talking about the commandments. Um, some uh, uh, God says, this is what you should do and this is what I've done Okay, well, so the, well, okay, close. I, I, so, like, there there are prescriptive commands, and then there, and then so, like, really, that deals with God's will. So, like, there's God's decreative will, and there's God's prescriptive will. So that may be what you're talking about. I know we talked about that. So, like, for example, God's prescriptive will is that no one should ever murder, right? Uh, or no one should ever commit adultery. But God decrees certain things to take place. We believe that God decrees all things to take place. And so you have to reconcile those two things together sometimes. Yeah. Um, because God says, this is, this is the way it ought to be for all people at all times. Yeah. On the other hand, this is, what, you know, this is the way that things are going to take place for, for better and more beautiful purposes. Okay? David committed adultery with Bathsheba. Okay? That happened. God knew it was going to happen. Arguably, God decreed it would happen. Oh my gosh, well how can God's decree of will be in conflict with his prescriptive will? Because God will make something greater out of it. That's the short answer. Because, and did David really commit adultery? Is he responsible for it, even though God decreed it? Yes, he is. How? Through a compatibilistic understanding of God's prescriptive will and decreative will and God and man and man's free will. Anyway, but but the second table. And my my point was that Lutherans do not regard that second commandment about graven images. We don't. We subsume that into the first commandment. And there are some Christians, though, who do thing, regard things like crosses and crucifixes or crucify and things of that nature as idolatrous because it's a graven image. We don't believe that because we would say that when God himself became flesh, he, in essence, became an image for man to behold. So what would be wrong is if we took the image of God as spirit and we put that into the form of a calf, a cow. Okay, and we said, we're going to take the eternal presence of God and we're going to put that into the form of a cow. And then we're going to pray to it, which is exactly what they did when Moses came off the mountain. They formed a golden calf. That was idolatrous because they tried to take the nature of God as being transcendent above all time and space and matter and energy and to place it into a little piece of gold. That is an idol. That is idolatrous and it's wicked. But when God himself becomes flesh for all lies to bestow on, and he, there's even, you know, talk when uh, he says uh, the Son of Man will be lifted for all the world to see. Um, that's not idolatry. And it's not idolatry, I don't believe, to then make, a, to recreate that image so for people can, to look upon. We can use a, uh, the chain with the cross. I believe so. With, with Jesus on it. I believe so. Yeah, we can. Now, now, you can use that image in an idolatrous way. Yeah. No, 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 just yeah. do it. But, but, but you can use it in an appropriate way. I think, for example, when someone like Madonna uh, or a pop star or a rap star who has profane words and lyrics uh, and, and, and preaches a worldly message, but they're wearing the crucifix as a, as a kind of a postmodern uh, statement of, I, you know, anyway, um, that's a deconstructionist way of thinking about things. And I think it's, that can be idolatrous, absolutely. So you can use an image, image like that in an idolatrous way, but it can be a helpful way to center your mind in proper worship as well. I don't think that is a graven image because God himself became flesh. Yes, now, yes. we talked before about Roman Catholics. That kind of just calls your attention back to God. You're not worshiping 
it ought to. It, 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 it ought to. Yeah. So, so if we bow before a cross, it's, it's a way of using our body to reflect an homage to God. But if we actually think that that cross in the sanctuary will do anything for you, you've made it an idol and you've made it a graven image in the worst way. That cross in there is not going to cure you of cancer in the church, right? It's not, it's not good. It doesn't have any magical powers. That's not the point. Oh, okay, okay. So yeah. I understand, yeah, yeah, I understand now. But, but we can use it as, um, as helpful in our, in our life of worship uh, because it's a way of centering ourselves before in the presence of God. But our point is that God himself became a, a visible image when he became the son of Jesus Christ. So... So we don't, that's why we don't have that particular commandment, but you'll see other Christian, other Christians that do. Okay. But now the second table of the law deals with the way that we, the way that we deal with our neighbor, the way that we deal with our neighbor. So the first is our relationship to God. The second is how we deal with our neighbor. So the first is the fourth commandment then, thou shalt honor thy father and thy mother. What does this mean? Luther asks. We should fear and love God that we may not despise nor anger our parents and masters, but give them honor, serve, obey, and hold them in love and esteem. And here's what I say about that. In truth, all of civilization rests on this commandment. Without respecting and honoring those who have gone before us, we have no real civilization at all, only a collection of people. We are so convinced today that it is good to challenge the assumptions of our forefathers that we have to relearn to honor what has come before us before daring to make our own improvements. So again, Luther has a negative and a positive teaching. We do not despise nor anger our parents and masters, but what do we do positively? We give them honor. We serve them and obey them and hold them in love and esteem. My point is that I can't imagine a functioning society in any real way that doesn't honor its past, that doesn't honor its forebears, that doesn't honor its father and mother. Um, you know, the problems with revolutions... Uh, which aren't actually revolutions because a revolution goes in a full circle. Um, the problem in disruptions, socialist or communist disruptions or fascist disruptions, is that they exactly, that all the wisdom accumulated in generations past, they want to destroy. And they do destroy for the sake of doing something new. So in a certain sense, that's a violation of, 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 the family, of this they commandment. They destroy a lot of families. And they destroy a lot of families, absolutely. Um, you know, to make an omelet, you have to crack a few eggs, right? Yeah, that's what yeah, they say. Yeah, that, that's that's what we do. That's yeah, we do. yeah, yeah. So, um, so I don't want to overstate the case. I mean, I think in a very simple way, we honor our father and mother. Now, I do know people that really struggle with this command because they have mothers and fathers that don't aren't worthy of honor. Uh, you know, this happens a lot. Uh, parents are not perfect people. Parents are sinners too. Um, however, there's no way that you can appropriately live as a Christian without first honoring your father and mother. Now, there may come a time where to, to um, obey your father might be to disobey God. Okay? Yes. Think of, you know, if your father is a Nazi, okay, um, don't obey your father, okay? Disobey your father. Uh, I, I'll give you an article, uh, an example that'll hit real close to home. Uh, uh, I have friends, and I've gone with them to the abortion clinic a mile south of here. And, and it's not uncommon at all to see parents taking their children, their 14, 15-year-old daughters, to abort their own, their children and their grandchildren. Yes. Happens all the time. And I have seen people plead with the child, disobey your parents. Disobey your parents. Don't get this abortion. It's your decision. You don't have to get this abortion. 
So are there times when you should disobey your parents? Yes, there are. You begin, though, with the, with the presupposition that you should honor your parents. So long as your parents are, as much as they're capable of doing it, honoring God themselves, then you should honor your parents. Because when you disobey your parents, if they are seeking to be faithful of God, you're disobeying God. It's a violation of the first commandment. You're not loving God when you disobey your parents, if they are seeking to be faithful to God. Yes. So just as, and it's the same with governments, right? I mean, if your government tells you to disobey God, you don't listen to them, right? Again, the Nazis are an easy example because Germany was such a civilized place, right? So what, what was the excuse at the Nuremberg trials? I was just following orders. I was just following orders. Maybe not even the Nuremberg trials, but the lesser trials as well. Of all the soldiers that committed, killed all the people in the gas chamber, I was, yeah, I was following orders. Then they go to the, the next guy. I was following orders. Then they go to the next guy up. I was following orders. Well, Hitler's at the top, and he's dead. So what do we do? No one's responsible. No one was responsible anywhere along the way. Give me, a, give me a break. Someone pulled the switch that killed all those people. Someone ran the train that put all those people on. Someone put the people onto the train. They're all responsible. Okay? To give an, another example, there are security guards at the abortion clinic. And this is an easy example, and it's a relevant example, because that is where life and death is legally, life, I would say, is legally taken, but immorally taken. There are security guards at that place who are helping people find parking spaces, enter the building uh, without having to listen to what people are saying. Um, and, and they're taking money from that place. It's blood money. They're taking money from that place, though, to keep a job. Are they innocent? No, they're not innocent. They're just as guilty as the everyone else in that building who's taking the life of that child. So the point, now, are they in a certain position of authority? Yes, they are. If I were to walk onto that property, they're my authority in a certain sense because it's their job to keep me off the property, okay? So the point is that, you know, there are spheres of influence. There are spheres of authority. Um, if your parent tells you to do something wrong, wrong you can disobey because you disobey God, you, you obey God rather than men. However, if your parents or any other authority is seeking to be faithful to God, then it is absolutely, unequivocally incumbent upon you to obey them. And I don't know how you have a society of revolutionaries, which is what we have in our country today, one revolutionary for this cause, another revolutionary for that cause, and Everyone's revolting, and, and you know, no one has any interest of maintaining the traditions that have come before and evaluating them on their merits and their demerits. I'm not saying that everything in our past is good. We used to have slaves, okay? So we have to be able to move forward as a society, but if you're not moving forward in a society in a way that honors God and honors the best of your father and mother, you don't have a society. You have a bunch of revolutionaries. And it's only a matter of time before those revolutionaries start to kill each other. So, yeah, there's a way that you can honor people's sensitivities and love people, but also maintain what you believe to be true. And so, part of what evangelism is and apologetics is is. Loving people, genuinely loving people, loving loving the non-believer, loving the revolutionary, loving the person walking into the abortion clinic, truly, deeply, deeply, truly, truly, truly loving them. Right. Exactly. 
Exactly. So this is, a, this is, you know, and I don't think it's just about father and mother, but it begins with father and mother because the, the smallest civilization on earth is the family. Yes. Right? You have a civilization within your home. I have a civilization within my home. From there, it extends to neighborhood, church, you might say, the workers. Work, you know. Co-workers. Co-workers, absolutely. Yeah. So if everyone's a revolutionary, you don't have a society. So for the sake of good order, God is... God displays his absolute perfection and brilliance with this commandment. Because if you want to have any kind of good life at all, you must first be obedient, you know. So anyway, let's keep going. Fifth commandment. This, this translation is thou shall not kill. Uh, it really should be thou shall not murder because there is a distinction which we'll talk about. But we should fear and love God that we may not hurt nor harm our neighbor in his body but help and befriend him in every bodily need. So again, the negative, we don't, we, we don't hurt or harm our neighbor. What's the positive? Luther is so brilliant in this regard. The positive of this commandment, there's a corollary. We help and befriend him in every bodily need, right? So it's not enough that we just refrain from taking the life of someone. We need to help them. Again, uh, to use the example again, people I know that go to the abortion clinic, it's not just that they are saying, don't do this. They're also saying, we will help you. We will help, you know, there are pregnancy centers that will help you with diapers and baby formula and cribs. And we'll, we will help you to, to, to have life. It's not just that we don't want you not to take it, right? So here's what I say. Uh, it's not enough not to kill. We also to want what is best for our neighbor and to aid them in their life. Few of us will ever murder another person. And yes, this is, like I said, a reference really to murder, not death on a battlefield, for example. And yet our anger alone is an offense toward God. Do not dare to believe that you have kept this commandment if you have never murdered anyone, for you should positively be looking out for others as well. Now, has murder taken place in the context of war? Absolutely. In the what? In the context of war, right? Absolutely. But that doesn't mean that every death on a battlefield is murder, okay? Um, we need to know when we are fighting a just war. And that's a whole ethical field of study, and it's not an easy one to answer. Sometimes it can be quite complicated. Um, sometimes we're involved in just war, and sometimes we're not. Sometimes we ought to be pacifist, and sometimes ought not. Sometimes we can be in the middle of fighting a just war, but we still commit murder when we go into a village and we rape the women and kill them. Okay, It's in the context of a just war, right? But it doesn't make that particular action just. So... There's a difference between justifiable taking of life. We see it in the Old Testament. God commands that life be taken. That's justified. And then there's murder. Yes. And, 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 and they're not the same thing. So abortion is a murder, too. Say again? Abor abortion is a murder. Abor abortion is murder. Absolutely. Look, uh, I, got a, I got a little real short story. We got, I know friends over there in Florida. It's a couple. Mm -hmm. 20, that point in time, about 22. 21 years old, 22 years old, boy, and she got pregnant. Mm -hmm. uh, but in that moment, that guy's situation is pretty bad. He have to lay off, you know, mm -hmm. got a job, and she too. So then think to go to the abortion clinic. Mm -hmm. But they knew in town, you mm -hmm. know, even motion town. And friends and all, we tell, hey, don't do that. You know, we can help you out, blah, blah, blah. No, well, so one day they get out to looking for the abortion clinic. Then new town, then just come back from, you know, speak too much English. Uh -huh. 
And they saw a sign on the building said something about abortion, blah, blah, but the only thing that the state was abortion. So mm-hmm. we were walking in. Yeah. And then walking to the place where her woman yeah. to not get abortion. A crisis pregnancy. So yeah. CPC. Then go inside and talk about abortion and come out one lady speaking Spanish and no, 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 this is not abortion thing. Yeah. We hope you guys in love. Well, you got like a, they want to go and say, no, no, come on, let's go talk. So see, yeah. you talking about half an hour or something yeah. there. And they get out from there. And finally, no, no, no abortion. Wow, that's amazing. Those those yeah, stories do something, happen. Something happened yeah. that's amazing, you know? Yeah. Right two blocks from here, there's a women's clinic on San Jacinto. Yeah. It's, it's a true a, a pregnancy center. I shouldn't say women's clinic because usually that means an abortion center. Uh, it's, a, it's a pregnancy center, and they do really good work. And across the street is now an HCC building that used to be a Planned Parenthood. So across the street was one group of, was one building where they killed babies, and the other side. Now, now, which one is righteous? You tell me. Which one is demonic? Which one is righteous? It's not even a close call, yeah. right? So absolutely, if if life begins at conception. This is my simple, very, I mean, it's not my argument, but it's obvious. If life begins at conception and there's no other time that science or, or biology or scripture or any, there's no other time it could begin. Every other, any other time would be arbitrary, right? Three months, two months, one month, when the baby's born. All of those are arbitrary times that someone just picks out of thin air. So life has to begin at conception. Scientifically, it begins at conception. That's when all the DNA is given to a new person. Then taking the willful, intentional taking of that life has to be called murder, and we have to be comfortable with that word. Um, and it's a grave sin upon our land. There's no doubt about it. You know, talking about 60 million abortions since Roe v. Wade. Mm-hmm. Every year? No, no. Uh, it's about 1.2 million every year. That's a lot, anyway. I mean, one is too much. One is. Ah, I, you're right. You're right. But I believe, like the government, the same way they approved abortion. Mm-hmm. the same way you have to make it a program real strong to help young ladies yeah a real good one you yeah know, i know he got one right now but he got some kind of holes here and there it's something better yeah to help that that young woman right and, or young uh couples to help us say okay you can get it the, you can have your baby we can help it like this like yeah. that well yeah <laughs> You know, because sometimes it's crazy the situation outside. You know, the couple yeah. have no guy job. And I know, I, obviously, yeah. People people find themselves in difficult situations, and uh, in fact, I'm trying to put together a conversation about that very thing on my radio show. Um, because one thing people say is, if you're pro life, you also have to be pro, basically, the pro welfare state, yes. so that you can take care of the child. Well, kind of. Uh, you know, I think that we should help people. You know, save the life. But the the first thing we ought to do is abolish all abortion. That's yeah. that would be very simple. Well, we not, we just you know, and states would do it. You can't do it federally. No, I'm not. I'm not agree with help people to give money. That's to me, it's not helping. Right. Right. No, don't worry. You're not working. You're not giving right. Money. No, no, that's not helping. Yeah. You know, no, we need. I, I, I'm. You know, if we something different. You know. Yeah. Well, we get we give something like five hundred million dollars to Planned Parenthood, which is the largest abortion provider in the country. They they abort about three hundred thousand babies every year. Five million dollars to that. The, the the federal government gives about five hundred million dollars to them a year, to to, the, to that organization. Yeah, and then of course none of it goes for abortions technically, it goes to other medical services and birth prevention. Uh, anyway, yeah. So yeah, you could do a whole lot of education with five hundred million dollars. Oh yes. But the first thing we have to do is eliminate abortion, and that's a very simple uh, law. It just requires lawmakers to do it, and. Uh, I'm actually trying to get more active to encourage lawmakers to do just that.
Um, that you know, the number one plank of the Texas Republican Party, the number one thing, the number one priority, you know what it is? To abolish all abortion. Now, what are they doing about it? Nothing. Hardly anything. But we'll talk about that later. Let's let's get through these. Sixth commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. What does this mean? We should fear and love God that we may lead a chaste and decent life in words and deeds and love each other and honor his spouse. Here's what I say. Uh, while adultery remains a perpetual problem in society, many more forms of adultery exist than did even in Luther's day. Lust is nothing new, but internet pornography is indeed a game changer. Christians must resist any temptation to pornography and instead insist rather that their future marital partners do not participate in it at all. Nothing good comes from pornography, and one simply cannot be called a Christian if they justify pornography. Um, so this is a fight that Christians have to take on. Uh, I talk about it. I don't want to talk about it, but I talk about it uh, because we have to. Uh, pornography is so invasive. It's so uh, accessible. It's free, and uh, every man is going to struggle with it. And, uh, and, 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 and the reason I talk about it so much is that it is a form of adultery. Okay, um, if, you, if you love and fear... Uh, if you don't love and fear God enough to with, withhold from adultery in your mind, then you know it. it you know it, it's adultery, um, and and pornography ends up leading often to you know real uh, physical adultery. You might say. So um, yeah, it absolutely does. Uh, and you know it's it's a problem with women too. Um, it, more and more women are consuming. More, you know, more and more percentage of people consuming pornography is women. Um, so anyway, um, and you know, one of the things that, uh, talking about adultery again, uh, adultery leads to abortion and abortion often leads to adultery. Uh, a, a lot of times when a couple partakes in an abortion, their marriage or their relationship ends or ends up in adultery because they know what they've done together. So anyway, um, so again, the, the, the negative is not to do this. The positive is to love and honor your spouse. Love and honor your spouse, Okay. So it's not just enough not to do it. We also love and honor our spouse. By the way, chastity, when we think of the word chastity, we often think it's when you're single and you don't have sex. You can have, cha you can have chastity within a marriage as well. You know, not just not having sex, but having sex, having relations, marital relations, which Paul says we ought to do, uh, and give ourselves over to that um, for one another. Um, but, but... That's in charge, you know, like sex is in charge or something, you know? Yeah. Like, well, yeah, dictating maybe the arguments even or stuff like that. Yeah. Oh, sure, sure. Yeah. But uh, chastity is is purity within a married life, right? Me, so, chastity. let me see if exactly what I mean. Chastity. Oh, well, yeah. What is what is the Spanish equivalent? I got, of that? I got, the, I got. But I want to be exactly. Yeah. Uh, so celibacy. C H A S T I T Y. C H A S T. Yeah. yeah. In the form of that, I'm using here is chaste. You would lead a chaste life, but but that is called chastity. It's not celibacy. Celibacy is like what oh, okay. a priest should be. Casto. Okay. <clears throat> Casto in Spanish like pure. Okay. On sex and things like that. Mm -hmm. Like you pure on that when you're talking about yeah. sex with a woman. Yeah. It's really it really is purity because celibacy is withholding altogether. That's what a priest a priest a celibate. Like Catholic priests do. Right. Yeah. Right. So um, in a marriage, I guess celibacy could be, you know, it, it wouldn't be the norm though. What the norm would be chastity in marriage. Be, it would it would be wife. pure. They yes, to be with your wife. wife and right. No, 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 the woman. That's right. That's right. Okay. Seventh commandment: uh, Thou shalt not steal. 
What does this mean? We should fear and love God, that we may not take our neighbor's money or property, nor get them by false wear or dealing. But, the positive, help him to improve and protect his property in business. Here's what I say. Not only are there many ways to steal in the internet age, but Luther's admonition to help our neighbor keep what is theirs is particularly helpful. We should also think of this in generational terms. Now I'm getting political. It is not only individuals who steal, but also governments from their own citizens fighting for a fair government and a free society so that theft is not institutionalized is surely a goal for Christians. I talked about this a little bit earlier. Um, I think that part of what Christians ought to do is to advocate for a, uh, a particular society in which, in which theft and stealing is not legalized. Remember, you can have something that's legal, that's immoral. Abortion is legal, but it's immoral. In many res- in, in, in in many respects, but I also think they believe that if they create a pure land, that you know their God will bless them. That's a false belief, but um, but certainly the 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 basics of this is that we don't take other people's stuff. And, uh, and, and and part of why I mentioned the internet age is that intellectual property is also someone else's thing. You know, stealing a patent, for example. I, you know, when I was growing up, we had Napster. Uh, remember, yeah, yeah, remember yeah, Napster? Yeah. Napster. It was a website where it was like file sharing. Free music. It, it was a network where where you you got free music, they right? A lot of musicians yeah. Yeah, it was well. It was their copyrighted intellectual property, yeah. and technically, what Napster was doing was illegal. And they put a few people in jail for it. And yeah. eventually, Napster became a paid service. I guess it's still around. But um, really, once you had the normalization of downloading music through iTunes and things like that, it pretty well went away. I mean, but there's still file sharing out there. You know, you, movies is yeah. the big deal now. That I, I saw the other day that uh, the oh, yeah. what's the new big movie coming out? Uh, no, maybe it's the new. Uh, it'll come to me. Uh, it wasn't Dunkirk. There, there is another. There is another movie anyway that that I saw that uh, you know millions of dollars worth of piracy has taken place. So you know people people were going to the theater, they record it, or they get it leaked, they hack the the company or whatever. And then the movie's distributed. That's illegal. That's immoral. That is stealing. That is just as much stealing as if I went to the grocery store and took home a chicken. Yeah, you know, yeah. or if I went to the bank with a gun and I took the money. Did you know the uh, the writing uh, Garcia Marquez? Uh-uh. He, he, he got Nobel the Nobel Prize, Prize for literature for liter, liter, uh, writing. Okay, He's from Colombia. Okay. And I remember one time in the news he wrote a new book, and before the new book, before he finished to write it, he saw people already selling on the on the street. Oh man, <laughs> that's incredible. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's crazy. Yeah. Before he, oh, I mean, I mean, no, I believe he's finished. Yeah. But he never gave it to the yeah to publish it, so he has to change the end. Oh man! Wow. That's crazy. Yeah, I don't know how that's. That's amazing. His it must have been his butler. I don't know. know. People, people doing anything. You know what I see? That's new, new. I mean, this this society. I believe, I believe that why a lot of things, you know, head Mm -hmm. head down. The money. Mm Hmm. Yeah, well, people now money. a lot of people now live only for yeah. driving a BMW, dressing $3,000 shoes, yeah. and a lot of people living only that. Only yeah, because that's that. the only thing that matters. I right? got the last phone in the, in the market, and yeah. thing like that, you know? Right. Because I'm, I'm, I'm working, I'm, my co-workers, it's not about people, but I, we sit and we, you're talking only about that. 
Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, that, and see what 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 they really are, they're really slaves. That's that's the shocking truth that people they they think they're free because they're out consuming all of the good things the world has to offer. From a biblical point of view, they really are slaves. They're slaves to their own desires. They're slaves to the marketing campaigns. Yeah. They're slaves to consumerism. They're not free people at all. Because, because the moment the next thing comes out, they have to buy it. Christians ought to, and this is one thing I'm telling some of the young men at the Bonhoeffer house, don't pay for clothes, you know, or go buy used clothes at the Goodwill. Who cares? You know, you know how much I paid for this polo shirt? Nothing. I got it free somewhere. You know, I'm not saying you shouldn't ever buy clothes. I'm just saying you shouldn't, yeah, just, you know, yeah. buy the most expensive clothes because you have to have it. That's not a Christian way of thinking. So I believe that's, a one, that's what I believe. That's one point why society right now is so crazy. That's one yeah. of the things. Money. Yeah. Money uh, position. The, the, a, a social contract that's against theft is very hard to maintain. Um, and there are many cultures where theft is normal. Bribery is normal. Stealing is normal. It's very very hard to fight against that. One of the things that made America work so well for so long was that it was particularly people, Protestants mostly, I would say, who were very committed to a moral way of life. They did not come from a state church uh, system where Christianity was just part of the culture. They were people fighting for real living Christianity. You have to go? Yeah, oh. well, yeah, I have to go start some laundry. Okay. Are no. y'all going to be here for a few minutes? No, we're about five more minutes, yeah. Uh, well, I'll just, I'll just wait yeah, we're, we're just about done. Okay. Um, so, anyway... Yeah. Um, that and only that commitment makes a social contract work yes, because you have to have contracts that people actually honor. It can't be a, you write something on paper, but then you're gonna you know you're gonna violate it. If you do that, there's distrust everywhere in the process in the society. And the only thing that makes the society work is bribery. You know, little little here, little there, little here, little there. That is that kills a society, and it's very troubling um, the way that people in America play fast and loose with the truth. They don't think anything about stealing. They don't think anything about other people's properties. That's why we have to have so much law, so much patent law to protect, and so many lawyers to protect people's property. You know, um, it's, it's sad. Okay, let's finish up. Eighth commandment is thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. The negative is that we should fear and love God that we may not deceitfully belie, betray, slander, or defame our neighbor, but positively we would defend them, speak well of them, and put the best construction on everything. Do not lie. That's do not lie. No. Do, not do not lie about your neighbor. Don't bear false witness about, about them. But the, I love the positive, which is to put the best construction That's on what they say and do. That is really hard. How often have you heard workplace gossip, right? A such and so did this. I, such and so I did know, that, I right? Know. It's my pet peeve. It's my pet peeve to hear people talk a certain way like yeah. that. You know? It's gossip, it's wrong, and what you ought not to do is you have to withhold judgment until you know the truth, okay? And even then, don't judge. Let God be the judge, right? So um, it, you have to discipline your mind to do that. The natural way people talk about other people is they gang up on them, they form alliances against them, they talk bad about them, or they put the worst construction. You know, they hear one thing and they make it even worse. You have to train your mind not to do that as a Christian because the, the commandment is not to bear false witness. You have to train your mind to look at each person in the best possible light. Now, that's going to get you in trouble sometimes because that puts you in a position to be abused, to be used, to be, to be manipulated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Happens at the Bonhoeffer house, right? We meet new people that want to come into the house. I'm always, I've disciplined my mind and I don't do it perfectly by any means, but yeah. you put the best construction on them. And then sometimes you put yourself in a position where people lie to you. They tell you what you want to hear. 
and they don't fulfill their end of the bargain, right? That happens. So, okay, we, we're just about out of time. Uh, ninth and Tenth Commandments sometimes are paired together. Remember how I said sometimes you have four commandments against God, the one about graven images? If you take that one away, the way that you still have ten commandments is that you take these two apart. You don't, uh, you, you don't covet your neighbor's house, and you don't covet your neighbor's wife. Let's look at each one quickly. Uh, do not covet thy neighbor's house. What does this mean? We should fear and love God, that we may not craftily seek to get our neighbor's inheritance or house and obtain it by a show of justice and right, etc., but help and be of service to him in keeping it. So not only do we not seek to take what is our neighbor's house and their things, uh, and you might do this through like a will, like an inheritance. This happens a lot with families, right? Uh, you think of like everything you're going to get from your parents, but you don't want your brother to get that. So you talk to the lawyer to, you know, change the will ahead of time, or you talk to your parents when they're sick to get them to change the will. Um, but rather, not only do you not do that, you actually help them keep what is theirs. Now, this commandment is already connected to the commandment not to steal. See, yeah. right? So it starts to overlap. So here's the brilliance of the commandment. Before you ever steal something, you want it. You covet it. You covet it first, and then you steal it. And before you commit adultery, you covet. Before you commit the act of adultery, you've been looking at her, and you've been thinking about her, and you've been fascinating about her, and the whole thing, right? Fascinate, fan, fantasizing. Anyway, um, so these, these, those commandments are very covered. And so the beauty is that it's not just that God doesn't want you not to commit an act. God wants you to be holy in your mind and in your heart and in your soul. That's why we have this commandment not to covet. Train your mind not to want, and then you won't, you won't steal, Okay. Um, the tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife or manservant or his maidservant or his cattle or anything that is his. We should fear and love God that we may not estrange, force, or entice away our neighbor's wife, servants, or cattle, but urge them to stay and do their duty diligently. So like the previous commandment, this commandment demonstrates that merely refraining from adultery is not all that God wants from you. He also wants you to refrain from it in your mind. Therefore, instead of looking at your neighbor's wife and things with desire... Your thought should be instead how to help your neighbor's marriage in the maintenance of their home. So let's say, for example, let's say you're a single guy and you have friends that are married and they're going through a rough patch and the wife who you're attracted to comes over to talk to you. Oh, that's a bad situation, right? That's red light should be going off. It's not your duty to agree with her. Oh, yeah, you have a terrible marriage. You yeah. should come with me. Yeah. I'm way yeah. better. No, you should help them stay married as a Christian. You know, and that might, and you know, that might be too hard for you. So don't even talk to her. Get out of the room. Shut the door. Hang up the phone. You know, turn off your text. Right. right? So, so it's your job as a Christian to help them stay married, right? Not to entice someone away from marriage. Um, if you look at pornography, you are being a consumer. You're telling the marketplace that we need more of this. So you're going to encourage people who are married or, or will be married one day, to participate in producing it. You see, that's the web that we weave when we participate in things we ought not to. So, again, it's not just about the act. It's about what's in our mind and heart and soul first because if we, if we can truly keep these commandments as best as we're able uh, with God's grace, we'll never perfectly be able to do that, but by God's grace we can do it, um, then, we, we, then we don't go into the area of stealing and and, and, and adultery as well. So there's a little bit more about that Luther says. I'm going to let you read that on your own, that next page. Uh, and then next time we will get into the creed, and then we'll look at the Lord's Prayer.
beautiful one who wants and isn't.